Welcome to the Spoiler Alert Podcast, and today we're going to be reviewing John Ford's film from 1940, The Grapes of Wrath. It's based off of a novel by John Steinbeck. It's considered like a a classic novel, kind of up there with, as far as like great, like, like book to movie translations, uh, right up there with uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and movies like that. This movie kind of is is set during the Dust Bowl era, the Great Depression in Oklahoma. That's at least initially where it's set. And before we get into it, I'd just like to mention that if you're listening on Spotify, please check out our YouTube channel. If you're listening on YouTube, please check out our Spotify. And we have social media sites on Instagram and Twitter, uh, all spoiler alert podcast, look for the hazard sign. And we also have a Patreon. And if you're able, we would really appreciate any sort of contribution on that. But The Grapes of Wrath is directed by John Ford. And John Ford is one of like the great directors in history. Like if you think about a classic Western, John Ford probably had something to do with it. He made, I think, over 60 films. A metric. I looked at that filmography and like, holy shit, this is like the most prolific dude I've ever seen. I mean, you know, and, and a lot of, at least a few of those, they recognize the classics. I mean, searchers and. He, he's most well known for his collaborations with John Wayne. All of John Wayne's best stuff is with John Ford. Now, there was one called Three Bad Men as well. And I guess Akira Kurosawa used the title of that. I don't know if it's the plot or just the title for hidden fortress because i guess the original title is like three bad men in a hidden fortress or something like that so i don't know if it's like a straight up remake hidden fortress or just that that makes a lot of sense because akira kurosawa was really inspired by john ford and like it was kind of a fun thing because you wouldn't really like especially with the tone and like the subject matter of a lot of john ford's earlier movies i don't know i don't know if you would just call it like straight up I don't know if you would call racism or just like cultural insensitivity or whatnot. Like he could be accused of like earlier in his career. Like for instance, he was like an extra in uh, birth of a nation, which is kind of a fair criticism maybe, but like, as he got older, like his movies definitely became more sympathetic and more humanistic to where like, you know, like even the searchers has, parallels where the villain in that is like basically and the hero are like two peas in a pod like they're the same person just on different walks of life and like you know so this this film is an example of him trending in that direction so this is kind of like the era of john ford where he is just churning out classic after classic i believe he won Best Picture and Director for The Grapes of Wrath. And then I think the next year he won again for How Green Was My Valley. As you mentioned, he directed Stagecoach, which is John Wayne's first film. Is that the year before this or like 39? I th- yeah, I believe it would be 39 or so. And Stagecoach was really influential. Orson Welles mentioned that he watched that film like on repeat when he was early into writing like Citizen Kane, well, assisting in writing Citizen Kane. And and the cinematography for The Grapes of Wrath was done by Greg Toland. And Greg Toland is famous for being the same cinematographer who did Citizen Kane a year later. So 
one of the greatest photographers that movies has ever seen. Orson Welles was a huge fan of both John Ford and Greg Tolan's work. Because that's, Stagecoach is really the, like, the foundation for every action film following it. Like, it's like Mad Max Fury Road, but just, you know, 1930s version. He's just a great director. Uh, What I was mentioning earlier before about, like, his humanism and whatnot would be, you wouldn't expect it, but Akira Kurosawa was very inspired by John Ford's films. And then when Akira started getting some credit, he later on met John Ford. Turns out that John Ford really liked Akira Kurosawa films too. So a cool trade-off of like film masters. So yeah, it's kind of funny because Akira Kurosawa was inspired by Westerns and then would go on to inspire other Westerns. Yeah, I wonder what was going so right then because it's obviously, I, I think a lot of people feel like it's going very wrong now. But I mean, like that, because it sounds really cannibalistic and everything. But no, I mean, like Seven Samurai was excellent, but then so was, you know, The Magnificent Seven. Like they're both great, you know? All right, so let's get into it. The film begins with a drifter played by Henry Fonda, who is the father to Peter Fonda and Jane Fonda. Peter Fonda would, was in movies like Easy Rider, Jane Fonda is also in a ton of movies too. Barbarella, right? I mean, that was Jane Fonda. Yeah, so that's right. Uh, yeah, Barbarella. Tom Jode is uh, hitchhikes with this trucker. This trucker's taking him through this rural Oklahoma town. Uh, start asking questions, you know, getting to know each other, and then, and then uh, Tom Jode says, uh, "You're probably wondering, so I'll just say it. Like I was in the penitentiary for four years." And he gets out the car and says, like, that he did it, that what got him in the joint was homicide. Yeah. Uh, he says yeah. homicide, which I've yeah. never heard pronounced like that outside of this movie, but it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think he's having fun with the pronunciation just to fuck with the guy, you know, because yeah, he's like, I must be eating you up what I did. Why? I won't let you down. Homicide. You know, and then he, yeah, he like gives this kind of sinister face and walks off, you know. Uh, he walks about like the trail. And he meets up with a former preacher that he used to know and had baptized him and all his his family, basically. And that character's name is Jim Casey. And he's played by John Carradine, who is father to David Carradine. I'd imagine Keith Carradine and the other Carradine that's in Revenge of the Nerds, whose first name I'm forgetting. Uh, Carradine is kind of a Hollywood. uh, One of those families. like They're all in something that you've probably seen. (laughs) Just a little more this uh, on like the background of like this oak this version of Oklahoma is it's set in the Dust Bowl. Everyone's poor. The land is basically risen up and blown away. Like all the crops are gone. Yeah, it's uh, bloody desolate. You know? Yeah, like yeah. a bad mix of both drought, uh, climate conditions, and over like like monoculture farming where. You, you're just planting wheat or you're just planting corn. And then all of a sudden there are no fresh, there is no fresh nutrients in the ground. And because, because it's kind of funny, like the way the earth works and the planet works is like wind. And this is why water is so important because what water is, is it's a transporter of nutrients, right? If I took like dirt from Japan and brought it to Wisconsin, and like made a field out of it and then wanted to plant whatever I wanted 
it would be very prosperous because like it's a different kind of soil that our soil isn't used to and like everything like all like the ground worms and like all the life within it you know would just like spark um oh, so like gravitate towards a new soil or something or, or some of it's yeah. got to do with new soil some of it's got to do with just like having a variety of things you grow so if you're growing corn in the same field every year for 20 oh, years yeah, it's like the irish with the potato famine yeah i mean where you, yeah, yeah like so. you gotta mix it up you gotta put soy there one year you know what i mean then put corn in the soy field and mix it up otherwise like basically the plants become numb to that soil you know what i mean like uh, a weird like great- kind of big picture view about it is i learned this watching one strange rock on disney plus but they were explaining why the Amazon rainforest is the way it is, like the reasons. And yeah, it gets a lot of rain and it has like climate like conditions that are good for it. But a big reason why is actually based in Africa, because in Africa, in the deserts, the Sahara Desert, literally those sands in sandstorms get blown across the ocean and end up making their way and like sprinkling down into the rainforest and that pops off with vegetation because basically the amazon vegetation is like fuck we don't have this kind of dirt here and like there it just excites it yeah so none of that is happening here in 19 in the 1920s uh oklahoma it's all monoculture everything went away I, I guess i'd recommend oh so it's a weird place but, but uh the ken burns documentary on pbs about the dust bowl that might be like i watched all 10 hours and retained none of it so you know um but it's like it sounds like the most boring shit on the planet but like I, it actually I, I watched the whole thing so i mean and like i said retained none of it so, but but still i mean <laughs> it was good um, so he's walking with this former preacher and the former preacher explains that like he's basically lost the calling for like preaching the gospel and he doesn't really outright say that he lost his faith in God, but you could pretty much read between the lines and be like, well, he's at least very separated from it and doesn't want to preach. And is just like looking for answers still. Yeah. That's the thing. He says that later in the film. I think it's, it's really well put. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of the dialogue is very novelistic. I mean, like where it just, you know, it sounds like a novel, but in a good way, I mean, you know, uh, it feels thought out and like, it's, very intentional so but one thing he says is uh um a preacher's got to know and i don't know you know i gotta ask that's where he's at in life it's like he's just got questions and, and as a preacher you need to have sturdiness to people you know how what does he says something like you know they're they're people like i don't know maybe there's no virtue or sin maybe people just do good things and bad things and and that's all there is i mean it reminded me of like you know, just because it's considered like one of the weakest, most nihilistic pictures ever, rightfully so, Gasper and Louise are reversible. But that's like 50 years later. And everybody, like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, this is a really bleak movie. You know, I, I think people think of like, you know, the code as being really, sim- I mean, there is censorship, but not really in terms of like content. Like this has it all as far as content. It's just kind of more how it's presented. But even despite that i mean it, it, it's uh it's a really bleak film really grand for like a lot of it 
again, I, I know I talked about it before, but just, you know, I think people have that idea that older movies don't, you know, it's all sunshine and rainbows and gumdrops and that's, that's bullshit. It's like, and the same with novels, you know, like, yeah, because this, this isn't a feel good movie for like at least three quarters of it. So there's really like one window in time where it's like, okay, things are looking up. And then they still <laughs> kind of don't work out. So, you know, like, I mean, yeah. <laughs> And there's no sound. It's just desolation. No music. I mean, uh, I don't know. That's what left out at me. That's again. That's all I've got. Like that. Like really broad stuff about it. It was bleak and desolate and depressing. Hey. But it was. Hey, I mean, you're, you're right, man. You're right. Uh, Jode and Casey go to uh, the Jode's house and find it abandoned, except for a squatter. The squatter explains that. Everyone's going to California because that's the only place they have work and like farmland that's fertile because California, you know, their their land is still relatively new and not untouched, but less less so. And the mountains kind of kept in like they just had like a better climate at the time as well for it. Uh, year round farming basically helps too. Which is um, weird because you think of California, at least well, Southern, Southern California seems a desert. But yeah, I mean, you know, um, mm-hmm. they're better off. So. That's like a big thing for uh, both the book and this is like a lot of that era of history was like, if you're going to make it, you got to move, you got to go west. Like that's just, that's like yeah, the only like the- way. I mean, they're like the pioneer. But I mean, that's what I thought, like watching the truck. It's like, you know, the, the wagons of the pioneers going, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. and it seems like it would be easier in a truck, but this movie, it probably was, but only by default. Like the, this movie makes it look really arduous. You know, people are dying along the way, like fucking Oregon Trail. I mean, you know, it's like, it's just, yeah, it's a grim movie. So, um, and that, the truck's weighted down and heavy and chugging along, you know, like these people, I mean, they're just barely getting there you know so mm-hmm. um and these are descendants of immigrants too so like the people that came from europe that are you know whatever great 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 grandpappy joe whatever you know came over probably because like like you had mentioned like the potato famine in ireland or something something like that you know uh yeah, so know, it's all like it's kind of like a cycle out west right. uh is is where this is what this story explains it to be basically we get kind of these flashbacks of this squatter uh how the squatter lost his home um which is a very good scene it's kind of it's kind of a famous scene of like when he loses his house to the bankers you also don't really have a face to who is the people taking these lands because the caterpillar drivers blame uh the company and the companies blame the bankers and the bankers are like, oh, it's out of our control. And it's just, no one takes any, there's no responsibility to be taken because they ask like, who, who do I got to kill? It's like, who, who are you going to kill? Like, Yeah, so they're just getting the little guy to do the dirty work, you know? I mean, he's, yeah, so he's already basically got a gun in his head which is not getting paid. So when the guy comes off the shotgun, it's like, you know, but... Yeah, and their whole lives are just over in an instant. I mean, everything they ever worked for their entire lives just plowed over and just keeps going. Like, there's no sentimentality. It's just done in the moment, you know? So, yeah, uh, it, I mean, it's just grim when you really think about, like, I mean, somebody's whole life 
I mean, the guy, well, yeah, you have that scene where he's like, you know, it's, it's our dirt, you know, even if it's not good anymore, it's, you know, we lived here, we were born here, we die in this dirt, you yeah. know, and like. Uh, the, scene, the scene is like, when you spend like your life working on it, or being born on it, working on it, dying on it, and no paper with writing on it. Right, um, yeah, it's like right. a poem. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, the stupid piece of paper is the, it just takes all that away. I mean, all that labor, everything comes down to, you know, I mean, yeah, that's where it kind of circles back to like his home is up for demolishment next year. His family's already moved out, I think. So yeah. relocated, yeah. Yeah, the family's moved over to their Uncle John's and um because their their place is scheduled to be demolished like the next day or at least that week at the family dinner at john's before we before tom tommy actually shows up that's the moment in this movie where we talk about grapes and grapes it like becomes a thing because uh the grandfather is talking about how when they get to california he wants to like he hears just a lot of grapes Yeah, he wants to smear himself with it, like roll around in a bath of grapes and make wine or something. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, now that I think about it, they're they're talking about North California. That's where they're going because that's where all the grapes, vineyards, and shit are. It's why, and yeah, so this is one of those stories in kind of like the tradition of like the Odyssey or Heart of Darkness, or I mean, it's just this, you know, like I don't know. It's one of those where it's all about the destination until you get there and you realize it's really the journey across is just. Uh, yeah, but it's like a tour, like like Heart of Darkness was a tour of not, you know the Vietnam War, and I mean uh, it's something in that tradition of the road. Cormac McCarthy's the road. I mean, there's like yeah, you're going across the era of Americans, the worst of it, really. I mean, but you know. Yeah. But Tommy shows up and tells everybody, "Hey, like I'm here," and everyone's like, "Oh, did you break out?" He's like, "No, I'm on parole," and they're like, "Oh, did you break out?" Like, no one <laughs> believes that he's out on parole. Everyone's like, oh, they, he, well, he broke out. Especially the grandfather doesn't even want to believe it. They want to believe that somebody stuck into the system and broke out, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, he's not on a leash still, you know? Um, exactly. That night, Ma burns old papers and I think even, like, deeds to the land they had and stuff like that. And then the next morning, the Jodes leave, and they, they're leaving in this big truck that's just packed to the brim like beverly hillbillies to the max like everything they can fit in all their lives is there and it's just like they mentioned like oh if the wheels don't don't break it's gonna be an act of god (laughs) and the grandpa of course doesn't want to leave because he's just so set in his ways it's like you can't make me (laughs) Um, uh and he doesn't last long (laughs) um Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, you almost kind of it's one of those things where it's like, God, you know, maybe you should have just died there, you know, instead of being picked up and, you know. But I suppose that's probably what killed him. I mean, it was just like making the journey. So I mean, yeah, yeah it's, it's sad. So yeah, you can ask yourself like, he's almost he might almost be better off like happier being a squatter like the one guy. You know what I mean? Well, no, he's pretty miserable too, though, because he's like everybody's left. You know, no, he's. I think he calls himself a graveyard ghost. You know, like he doesn't even exist anymore. You know, it's a brutal existence. Um, and then uh, Grandpa dies of a stroke shortly into their journey. Uh, the preacher says some words. You know, he doesn't really have the vigor that he would have once had as a preacher as a young man. 
Not at all. It's like the worst shit. He's like, he, what does he fucking say? It's like, well, he's dead and his troubles are over. So, you know, he's not his job. He knows what to do with himself. That's why he's dead in the ground. So help him get on with it and shovel the dirt. I'm like, wow, that was hit you in the field. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, his troubles are over. His suffering's done. Uh, good enough for me. <laughs> Very unsentimental. But, um, yeah, and then they carry on. And then there's a scene where they kind of meet up and for like, you know, cause like a lot of people are doing the exact same thing they are. So there's a lot of people on the road. So they find these like stopping, these stopping areas where they can get food and water and rest and camp out. And in one of these areas, they're meeting up with like some other people that have just been in California. And this one guy explains that, yeah, they have flyers out for jobs for peach picking and stuff like in cotton picking and stuff like that but they're handing out 200,000 flyers for 80,000 jobs or something like that you know so by the time you're there he explains that his family starved to death <laughs> like yeah. like he seems like just an asshole like oh why are you raining on everybody's parade but his fucking family died so, and, well, I think we encountered some starving children at the start of that scene or am I getting ahead mm-hmm. of that yeah so and that's actually the scene at this meeting place with the guy who says he was in California and is making his way back to Oklahoma. Uh, uh, that's when we see what I think is another Carradine. Because <laughs> okay, he, off- yeah. he looks awfully like Bill from Kill Bill. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a striking I- semblance. So I, I, it's got to be one of them. Like, like you said, probably the grandfather or something, you know. Um, they go by a gas station and buy bread. That's a interesting scene. Not not too much to be said about it beyond uh, just you know they're living off the goodwill of some people. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's one. Um, of the, it's one of the few instances of, of well, no, I mean there is charity through the film. I mean, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it, it just comes between like you definitely see both sides of humanity on the way over. You see, yeah, like, I guess that's true. Right? Like the the bleaker aspects stick out in my mind, but there is. Yeah, there is compassion in there. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you, you see some, you see some like goodness, and then you see some goodness that's like kind of strained because they're like, you know, no one, no one's doing well. Like, right. there's like pretty much like even like the, the candy, like the gas station with the candy, they're like, you know, we can't afford all that much. And it's like, oh, we'd have to throw that bread out anyway. Just give it to them. And well, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting, like, the, I mean, not to talk it to death, but yeah, I, I, her sort of initial resistance to giving them the bread, and I think maybe her boss's willingness kind of brings out the goodness in her, you know, so she ends up giving the kids the candy for mm-hmm. a substantial discount, you know. Um, I don't know how much there is to really be said, but it, it's one of the lighter scenes. But it isn't just, I mean, yeah, it's not done in some ham-fisted way where they're just like, oh, yes, take everything, you know? I mean, it, it's not, you know, uh, a Christmas carol or anything. I mean, And then they're right about to cross into California. They take a break, and they look at the distance, and they're looking at the Sierra Nevadas, which are, on average, the tallest mountain range in America. It's really ominous looking. The family is just looking at these things. It's like looking in a Mordor or something. They yeah. See, like... Like they expect like California is going to be a paradise right away. And initially it's like actually hellish. You could say that's like the first barrier to entry, really, because they keep getting blocked along the way. So you could say these really tall, ominous mountains are like their first 
the first blockade, you know, mm -hmm. I guess, you know, I, okay, I'm, I'm reaching. Like, you oh, know, you're, you're not reaching at all because Calif once they're in California, like right away, they get hassled at gas stations. They get hassled at like checks, like these checkpoints okay. where you have to stop if you're a migrant and like they search your shit. And right before the scene that you see behind me, before they find the fertile stuff, um, they're, they're at one of these checkpoints and grandma's looking real sick and not moving her eyes much at all. <laughs> and he's uh, calling out for grandpa. Right. And um, Ma has her in her lap and is comforting her. And they're at one of these checkpoints and they don't want to, you know, be hassled. They're kind of like, can we just go like, like my, like gr grandma's sick. And then he's like, yeah, take her to the doctor. And then they drive well, over. They, they and, give him shit, but then they, they show, uh, he sees, I mean, grandma looks fucking bad. And she is. And know? she is. Yeah. So, but he's like, oh, you weren't kidding. Okay, fine. You know, like he makes an exception, but you know. Yeah. If anything, they lock out at a lot of their checkpoints. I don't know what, like, if one of those checkpoints went wrong, what that looks like. Because the, some of the stuff they look for are like bringing plants and invasive species and stuff like that. Um, I'm sure they're also doing like criminal background checks, but they just get hassled this whole time. Like I said, they eventually see the scene behind me where they see, you know, what looks to be like just the most fertile land they've ever seen in their lives, at least in years and years. And Ma explains to them that had, grandma had died and and she was like, you know, putting it off so that they could get through that checkpoint. Um, it's, it's interesting you chose like probably the only visually like pretty scene in the whole movie. Like what stuck out to me was the, uh, the, the initial optimism there. Um, California <laughs> is like if the Shire was right on the other side of Mordor. Like, <laughs> like instead of the seeing those yeah. ominous mountains in the distance and thinking something bad's on the other side, it's just the Shire. <laughs> Uh, and then they meet this cop that's a good cop that says, oh, he's from Oklahoma, he's from Oklahoma. So they kind of give him a break because they're at this like campground of migrants. Uh, yeah. And this first campground of migrants does not go well. A lot of these campgrounds don't go well. One goes OK. <laughs> um, still a hiccup with that. Yeah, but like, I mean, yeah there's yeah. still a hiccup with it, but it's they do the best they can at that one. Um, but for this one. A cop says, don't park in town tonight because they're going to be, you know, doing raids and fucking people shit up. And then he explains that there are some jobs south picking peaches. These shelters and like campgrounds like are almost more similar to like modern day slabs, which are these California and like Western basically homeless communities of people like living in like old airplane parts and shit like that it's just a rough way of living and then ma has like the debate of like do i feed these other kids that aren't mine uh she eventually decides that she does so it's kind of like eating into their literally eating into their rations but well it's, it's like don't feed the bears kind of which if i'm going to make a really strange connection there's that in travels with charlie by john steinbeck there's the whole don't feed the bears with his dog. okay yeah I don't know but there's a similar concept there that yeah you don't want to feed the the, the children because they're going to come back for more and there's just nothing you can really do about that so it's almost mm -hmm. like torture really 
because you can feed them for a day, but not enough to satisfy them, and you can't do more than that, you know. Uh, I think because she, yeah, I, I remember, yeah, she says, did I even do the right thing, you know, by doing this, right? Like, she's not even yeah. sure that feeding them was the right thing. This businessman and a cop like drive into this camp, and he's explaining that he has a fruit picking job. Somebody calls that out and it's like, hey, tell us what we're going to be making. Otherwise, you, you know, you'll take the rug from under us if you have enough workers, you know, because if yeah, they have enough workers, have they'll just pay them like crap. Well, yeah, because this guy's been through it. So it's like, do you even have a license to contract people? Because if you do, then it's a set amount of money and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's official. If not, then you just get to jerk people around whichever way you want and keep, you know, lowering the price because there's so many people who are so desperate such that it, it's not even something that people can survive on. So then basically the weak will die or move and a new batch will come in, you know? Um, yeah. So the cop that's with that businessman is like, well, you've been acting really disgruntled. I might have, you know, might have to take you downtown with like a wink and a nod, like towards the business owner, like, hey, I'm going to arrest this guy because he's talking shit about your business. Right. Um, and you know, the so cops yeah, they are probably have an arrangement, you know, or something. Yeah, there's some some level of corruption with, with like multiple sets of police forces here, uh bought out police forces. The guy just the guy just runs and yeah, then the cop takes him. takes out his gun and shoots him, but totally misses and shoots this woman. This yeah. woman just standing in the middle of the road, minding her own business, like, oh God. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean she's She's done. I mean, that's what it, it's just, it's very unsentimental about that. That's what stuck out in my mind. It's just like, they even explain it's a 45. Dead. So, like, you it's know, like it's not, it's not <laughs> gory or anything, but like if you're at, if you like know what that kind of does to someone's body, like, yeah, no, you know, that's probably dead. some of the code stuff. Cause yeah, like dirty, hairy, you know, look at clean off, you know, all that. You know, she just gets a little ah, but. But still, it's a fact. I mean, she's dead. She's and nobody cares. Like it's just, you know. I mean, yeah, all these people are dead anyway. It's kind of like almost the mentality, you know. And then Tommy knocks out the cop, but Tommy's on parole, so Casey takes the fall for him, and basically says, "Tommy, go hide." So Tommy yeah. runs. Tommy runs off. Ta- Casey takes the blame and accepts his arrest. So they get the fuck out of that camp and they start heading south where they heard there were more jobs they get turned around by this mob who doesn't want people coming and taking their jobs um and driving the price down like right when things are very the world dish the 2005 when they just surround the fucking car yeah i mean yeah it's pretty much man yeah it's pretty apocalyptic at least for these folks um, I think, I mean, it kind of, yeah, it reminds me of something like the road or something. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, so. Yeah, and then they, they got to repair a tire. This man comes in and drives by and says, like, hey, there's peach pick pickers needed down this way or whatever, and, set, and says, say Spencer sent you. Uh, so that'll basically get them through. And then this camp is a lot better. Like, it has, like, these shelters that, kind of give you an internment camp vibes but that's kind of interesting yeah it does though these camps like they're technically better you got shelter so if it rains you're gonna be fine you don't have to worry about a tent there's running water or well there's running water there's just not a ton of it but there's like a weird energy to this one like everyone kind of treats people like shit still 
they won't let campers wander at night, which is pretty fucked up. Um, well, more than that, they won't even let Tom Gill leave later. I mean, like, it's like they're mm-hmm. locked in. Yeah. So we're given certain numbers of how many pounds of peaches they have to pick every day without them being bruised. And that's how much money they'll make. It seems good enough because they'd be making nothing otherwise. You know what I mean? So they'll take it, but it's low wages. And then Tommy, like, who got turned got turned down by that one cop and who wasn't letting him like go out for a walk at night. He ends up going around a back way near the river actually finds like this camp, this tent that's just outside of the camp itself. He opens it up and he's like, Oh, there's Casey. They're basically talking about striking and explains that since there's enough workers, they're going to drop the pay to two fifty. And so like you cut it in half and you can't even live on that. And the only place you can buy food nearby is pretty expensive because they know that they got people like they have no other choice down the line. Like one ton of peaches is going to be, is going to equal for a dollar a pay. Well, he's, it's proven to be prophetic because you know, I mean, that's pretty much what happened. I mean, well, at least about it being the wages being cut in half. So you can kind of see like a light in Casey's eyes because this is kind of something that he's still learning or whatever and kind of a searcher, but he feels like he's a voice to the people uh, as opposed to a voice to God that he used to be because he can't really attach himself to that anymore. Playing a similar role, but in a new way that seems better suited to the world that he's in, you know? Yeah, something, something that he can feel like he's making a difference to for and making people's lives better, uh, which is, you know, supposed to be yeah, what I mean, religion does. Good and evil isn't quite what's applicable to the current situation, you know? Um, right. Immediately after that scene, they hear people coming, so they go out into the river. Cops show up. Casey is hit in the head really hard and immediately killed by this cop. And then yeah, well, I Tom, saw that it's weird because it like it felt like death. I mean, when he got like something visually just like yeah, he just goes him. limp, and you know it. You know, yeah. Tom kills one of the cops, hits him in the head, and the way Tom had done his initial murder that got him in the joint was he got like in a bar fight, and someone stuck a knife in him, and then he took a shovel and hit the dude in the head. So. Sounds pretty dark to say, but he knows what it feels like to kill a man with blunt force trauma and, and feel the skull break. Says, so like, yeah, later on he says like, "Is he dead?" Because it felt like it, and yeah, you know. So uh, just one good whack, and that's what it took. So well. Tom does get hit really bad, like in the cheek, in the high upper cheek, close to the eye. So they know that there's a mark on him, and they're basically like, "All right, so this place isn't working out either. Let's fucking go." They sneak out with some lies and whatnot. Their license plate is taken, but they get the fuck out there, out of there. And then they go to a better, much better camp under the rule of the Department of Agriculture. So it's a division of the government, uh, way better. <laughs> I think some officials and just basically committee men among that are also people that live there. You know what I mean? That like kind of put things to votes and, almost like aldermen and whatnot and town yeah, I mean, council type people. probably what's best for that community because they're actually there you know people call people reds and that's referring and to actually, communists yeah. i wouldn't go as far to say as this is all all right like outright communism 
but you know it's more that direction than rugged individualism i should you know what i mean i think the reason it works so well too is you can see why they would look at this situation which does work out for them for the first time along this whole bloody journey you know something actually goes right they have running water they have there's latrines with running toilets the kids mess with that and don't even know what the hell it is kind of like a vibe where it's like if you if everyone just does their part to clean to keep the place clean like tom like turned off the water spout when someone left it leaking like everyone just does a little bit of a good thing and it builds up tom first gets there and there's that scene in the office or whatever and like he just sounds like you know so defeated and, and, and hardened and bitter you know and then it's not really even a sales pitch. I mean, the guy just says, this is how it works here. And he's like, what? Because you know, it's, it's not like anything they've really encountered to this point. It's, um, al- it's almost like one of those scenes in movies that you see where like there's, a, there's like an orphan kid who gets put in a, bu- a bunch of bad homes. And then he finally gets, yeah. he or she finally gets in a good home. He can't even believe it, you know? Yeah, it's like, because he's so past daring to hope. I mean, just every step along the way has been... To put it, a disappointment would be to, to put it, I mean. An understatement, uh, yeah. Right. Um, and they hear rumors that cops are going to try to antagonize and start a fight in the dance hall so that they can clear out the riot, sort of like. Visually, like what, how did they suppress that internally exactly? I mean, I, I, I suppose we can explain the whole thing real okay, quick. Perfect. So this dance happens. And at first, there's like four or five working for the cops in one way, shape, or form that are just supposed to like get people riled up and just start a fight and start a fist fight. And then they have an yeah. exact time set out, like 729 or whatever it was. And then yeah, the cops were going to get ready to break up the riot and then use that as an excuse, I'm sure, to shut these places down because they're a competitor to the other stuff they have going on the way they do it is they kind of i think they just kind of take everyone's by the wrist and like kind of just push them out and like escort them away from the scene altogether so that when and then like the crowd almost seems to like kind of know what's going on and enclose yeah a lot of them were let in on it and like like applauded to you know, mask the sounds and the... Yeah, I, I guess they did a good job because even I was confused. I'm like, wait, what just happened? You know, like, so, I mean... I think Tommy punched one of them just to, like, the most aggressive one just to, you know, subdue him. And then other than that, it was just very quickly done. They, swift, they like, swiftly got them out there. And when mm-hmm. the cops came, they're like, we're here to stop the riot. And they're like, what riot? Right. <laughs> yep. And then they all dance. And also when they were dancing, uh, Tommy was dancing with with Ma and that was a pretty sweet scene. That night or a night near it, Tommy was asleep and woke up and saw that cops were going in to check on the license plates for Jode, of the Jode license plates because Tommy's on the run because he's wanted for murder now and he's on parole. There's nothing really that the caretaker of that camp can do. He's got his hands tied, so. Yeah, he'd be the prime suspect. You had Jones there, they left. There is a pattern, like you said, of cracking people over yeah, the head. They, so. they barely yeah. snuck by. Like, they had to do some lies. And so Tom decides that he has to leave and just not drag the family down with him. Him and Ma have 
a goodbye is the best part of the entire movie when he has this monologue about thinking about the people and he's kind of thinking like Casey where he doesn't exactly know what to think about certain things when it comes to labor and migration and resources and that kind of stuff. But he never he, got the chance. He was put down before he could really, you know. Mm-hmm. But he lived on in the sense that he got Tom thinking about those things, you know. So yeah, um, and yeah. and he want, but he wants to keep learning. He wants to keep like fighting for the little guy. Basically, his great monologue that's like, "I'll be there." Like when a cop's beating up a guy, I'll be there. When if someone's hungry, I'll be there. Or... Springsteen did uh, an album called "The Ghost of Tom Jones," which is just like my top five favorite albums of all time. It's like a successor to Nebraska. Um, which I think Sean Penn did like a movie adaptation of one of the stories. And right? I, I've always said like Springsteen is a storyteller, Dylan's like a prophet, and Paul Simon's a poet. But like really weird, I was going to recommend the album because I fucking love that album. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to it. And, and that whole thing is in there, you know. Love, wherever there's a cop, feeding the guy. You know, like, I mean, wherever a hungry newborn baby cries. Like, I mean, that, like, that whole thing is in, I mean, the title of the album is, you know, yeah, The Ghost of Don, Tom Jones. Uh, I love that fucking album. I, I know we're going to kind of diversify for, perhaps and do maybe books and other things. So, hey, why not music? Listen to the fucking Springsteen album. Like, perfect chaser to watching this movie. And then just to wrap up the very last bit here, the Jodes leave once more for Fresno. I don't think it's more so because the Jodes are on the run from this place because you see, like, a line of cars leaving. So I Got think... I think they were doing wheat there because um, I saw a sign for wheat at the oh, okay. at the government affiliated place. So I think they may have been p- picking wheat and it may have been out of season. So that might be why they moved out. I don't think it was like, oh, we were treated like shit here. Like this well, is I like the best place. Like, this is the best option they've seen. So definitely. But people, I think they have like, like you said, I mean, actually, yeah, people are probably still going to come look at and also, like, if they move, like, this one more time, like, better chance that they don't get any hassle about Tom. It's a dream that couldn't last, you know, in a, but it's, uh, yeah, I mean. Mm-hmm. And then in the car ride, Ma does a monologue herself. She's, yeah, I like that one. Someone asks Ma if she's scared, and she's like, I ain't, I ain't ever going to be scared again. We're, we're the people that live, you know, like, oh. the, like, the rich might have a child that is weak. And then doesn't live on and doesn't, you know, do anything with their lives. But we're going to keep getting better. We're going to keep going because we're the people. The vibe that extends all the way back to the old country and like Europe and wherever the immigrants came from. And then when they were on the eastern side and then went to the Midwest and then all the way to the west. Those are the people that live, you know, the ones that keep striving for better and keep getting a little better generation by generation. And that is how they end the movie. It's full of so many great, I mean, again, I, I'm sure those are all pulled from the novel, but um, one thing was she pointed out the difference between men and women. I don't, it, it's not a big thing, but I just thought it actually seemed like an astute observation. Like, I was like, that kind of is how it is. Like, men do seem to live in jerks, right? Something, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's stable until something pulls them and then they shift a little bit. But like, you know, she says women are like water, you know, a river. They just flow with things. I don't know. But anyway, uh, more than that, uh, there was a conversation she had with Tom Yoad earlier on where this was really interesting because it's just something that seems so foreign now, but it, it's still worded in such a way where you can see what she means. Yeah, you never felt alone because 
you know, a family was something that never died, really. It was like, you know, she says, you know, grandparents would die, but then children would be born. And it, that, that was always just a guarantee, you know? And so it, that always started to erode, you know? And um, uh, yeah, she knows things are cracking and, and uh, well, she says it. Yeah, it, it just, it's, it's interesting because that dynamic doesn't really, it's not the guarantee it probably once was. And the, the note of the film is, despite what she says, still sort of optimistic because they do keep going. And I actually like what what you said. What you do see with a lot of these rich families is that they they dedicate their whole lives to that pursuit, and they totally neglect the kids who turn out to be like junky assholes who fuck everything up that you've ever worked for over the course of your life, and it's just gone like that, you know. So you know, probably something to that family dynamic does endure despite the hardship they face. So even if it is breaking apart, I think, yeah, maybe there is an optimistic kind of note there at the end that however bad they are still going, they're still together, you know, even if they're not all there anymore. Place in society, it's considered an all-time great. A lot of lists have it top 20. Uh, it's probably not my personal top 20, but I definitely see why, a, why like, a, you know, like a professional like movie critics list will have it top 20. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I put it in my top twenty, but I. I mean, I would give it a five. It is a really, really great film. So um, I kind of debate with with whether I like this one better than The Searchers. I think I do like this a little better than The Searchers, and The Searchers is another all time great. That's just me debating two John Ford films. We both had some recommendations. Um, the Searchers, which is probably got to be either John Ford's best or second best. And then this one, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. But this is a great movie. And this is one of his last, his later movies, because this is 1962. Um, so this is 22 wow. years after Grapes of Wrath. And Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is, the movie, is a movie about a love triangle where John Wayne and James Stewart love the same woman. And John Wayne is kind of like this tough, like hard ass, like not the smartest, but like street smart type. And then yeah. James Stewart is like lawyer smart, kind and just, and they both have their virtues and they both have their vices. And like, like you wouldn't I mean, think of like depressed, angsty John Wayne. No, because that's so not his. But you that know, is things. what Liberty Valance is because when That's you realize ask, he fucking, he tries to commit suicide in the movie. The crazy oh, thing about it is it's really the last movie of the golden age of Hollywood because the golden age of Hollywood was basically the 50, early, like the 40s and the 50s. And this is like 62 and this was around the time where 1962 for American films, yeah. mind you, like uh, Lawrence of Arabia wasn't uh, an American film. So that's a whole different animal. But all the movies that kind of kept with the classic kind of code sort of narratives and styles, other than like To Kill a Mockingbird, they all start they were all kind of shitty around this point in time like this was a weak point for film history is like late 50s early 60s 
because well, yeah, because that was like they'd exhausted nowhere, they'd exhausted the Western. I think it, I mean, would you say it's because they became limited by the code, or they just kind of had done everything they were to do anyway? A little, mostly what you were saying there. They had done everything they they had thought of in that form. Like the only things that were really hitting home for people were the things that were jolting, like Psycho. And so this is like really like the Twilight film of the golden age. Was it kind of like transitional? So it's part golden age, part new. Yeah, it, it gives you golden age vibes and then it gives you new Hollywood vibes. So new Hollywood is what came in after because new Hollywood is like fucking hippies and Scorsese. Yeah, and Easy Rider and all that. Easy yeah. Rider and all that. So like this is like a morph um between the two and okay. it's uh, it's honestly really good um yeah because just what you're describing is like something i can't even picture suicidal john wayne i'm like what the hell does that look like but, <laughs> <laughs> at least briefly suicidal john wayne um uh so some what, what were some of your recommendations dakota well i i, I actually don't really have i have um again if we're going to diversify uh, i would say uh it's a it's a novel they did a film adaptation i've never seen uh, so I can't attest to its quality. It's kind of hard to imagine that they could have, maybe they could have, but I think it would be sanitized. Or it, it gets really grim. Like, um, in fact, watching this movie, I can almost imagine, however grim this was, it's probably a lot grimmer in the novel. Um, but so The Good Earth, one of my, one of my favorite books, uh, there was uh, uh, The Ghost of Tom Jones by uh, Bruce Springsteen, which was a successor to Nebraska. You know, like each song is a story about somebody going through like hardship in a different, I, I think in The Ghost of Tom Joad, it's, it's the uh, Southwest. Uh, that's a bleak album, but it's fucking great. And uh, I would definitely, absolutely. And the, and the first song is, you know, searching, I think searching for The Ghost of Tom Joad. So I mean, like, yeah, I, I, a great chaser um, to, to watching this movie, uh, but. And, and then on that note, Dakota, out of five stars, what do you give? Oh. The Grapes of Wrath, 1940. I give it five stars as, as well. It's it's an all-time classic. You'll see it in a lot of top 20 lists. You know, I can't scoff at it being in a top 20. I can't even say, you know, you can't even say like, oh, it's pretentious just because it's an old movie. Well, like a lot of old movies had a lot of good stories. Like, yeah. and nowadays, like, it's like we're it's like we're starving for good stories but like then there was a surplus you know and it was just is the director any good i know i, I was really thinking that yeah we were just spoiled for quality you know i mean like um for some reason i was watching firefly and i, I only ever thought firefly was really good but like i'm looking back on firefly like, god that was great television you know it's like it seems harder to find these things that's not going that far back but i mean i think the mm -hmm. sentiment's similar something kind of changed in the past 10 years so so everybody listening, please check okay. out our, uh, everybody listening on a podcast like Google or Spotify or uh, Apple, uh, check us out on YouTube. Everyone watching on YouTube, check us out on, on the Spotify and wherever you can get podcasts. Check out our social media sites on Instagram and Twitter. Those are both spoiler alert podcasts. Look for the hazard sign. Uh, we have posts of pretty much like some criterion stuff and then whenever a video comes out so you can stay updated we have a patreon up that link will be in the description as well so if you'd be so kind check that out other than that i'm nate co-host is dakota 
Have a great day, everybody.